arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Tonight we begin a series that's markedly different. This Space Fleet Galactic Command travels in a wide area of space far into the future. Planets around distant stars have long since been colonized with humans that have, over the millennia, evolved into humanoid life. In this distant time, incredibly, there have been no sightings or contact with alien life. The mode of travel to the planetary surfaces from the main ship is conventional with smaller transport ships. This series is character-driven in the universe of new planets and unusual phenomena. Even the years and months have evolved into a new system. The Explorer spaceships, the ESS ships, are powered by coils which utilize dimensional space for propulsion. Commander John Ross is the central character in Galactic Command, assisted by Commander Hugh Lindsay, Lindy, and Frank Muldoon and his crew control the coils. Chief Crutch Kuczynski provides security for the ship and the communications officer monitors the channels on the ship and outward. In the book, The Nebula Planet, the Antarian War has just ended with the signing of the peace treaty with these evolved, compact, light-skinned creatures, the Antarians. Ross, Lindy, and some of the crew are off on the mothership for downtime after the signing. Ross meets his old friend Nancy Burke, a bender, type of reporter or correspondent. Ross is unaware of what awaits his crew and what will be required so soon after the end of the war. Let's listen to Commander John Ross's summation log as the treaty is about to be signed. The Nebula Planet by Robert P. Fitton starts now. Galactic Command, June 21st, Galactic Time. John B. Ross, Commander. Polonis, 756A, Explorer Spaceship 14. Main link, GC Polonis Earth. Additional link, Mothership Earth 11, Polonis 143. On June 15, 2155 GT, Articles of Peace were consummated between Galactic Command and the Antarian Sanctum. The Articles, known as the Bilateral Withdrawal Treaty, were signed on Antares 6 by Command Council Admiral Gates and all sitting Council members. The treaty moves the boundaries of the Antarian Sanctum to half the pre-war area and creates a full war zone known as the Antarian Occupied Territory. No Antarian vessels will navigate within the Occupied Territory without prior permission escort, and full representation of ship's orders and destination. All prior Antarian planets and outposts existing before the hostilities will be retained by Galactic Command. Monitoring of all Antarian weapons testing will be required. A listing of all commerce provided to Earth Polonis Link. Violations of the battlefield or monitoring requirements will be considered a full act of war and treated accordingly. The ensuing period of peace was proclaimed by Command Group Admiral Gates. In attendance from ESS-14 were Commander Ross, Commander Hugh Lindsay, and Lieutenant Commander Walter Kaczynski. 
Commander Ross was presented by Admiral Ebert with the solemn order of battle for the victory at the Marigold Star System, forcing the Antarian fleet surrender. Commander Lindsay received a citation by Admiral Ebert for the meritorious battle star. The Valor Commendation was bestowed upon Lieutenant Commander Kaczynski. A five-day leave aboard the mothership was granted by Admiral Ebert to senior crew members. Commander Lindsay and myself have left ESS-14 for the mothership and downtime. Ross, commanding ESS-14. Chapter 1. He was on a continuous binge for three days and did not care who knew about it. After four and a half years of battle, confined within his ship, fighting occasional battles on 23 planets, and under the constant threat of Antarian attack, John Ross, commander of Explorer Spaceship 14, wanted to push the limits of his physical and emotional stamina. In the murky blue light, he rapidly lost his concentration after his second brumac. Months had passed since he had drunk so heavily and had chased women like this. Still, he drifted back to last week's peace treaty ceremonies on the Antarian's home planet. The surviving Antarian city buildings had clear green windows that reflected Antares' six rugged mountain peaks in the looming crimson sun. Amidst the rubble, command engineers had constructed a long pavilion. The surrender tables were positioned in a parallel fashion under the blue glow of a prodigious blue command sphere designated the 506 aligned planets. Ross visualized the wispy white-handed Antarian cervix in their full silver uniforms as they marched under heavy guard along the form creek. Missing was Serban Rafik, killed in Ross's final attack at the Marigout star system. Every surviving Serbark must have felt the humiliation of surrendering on their home planet. They were seated at the glossy black tables, their pale faces wrinkled as the treaty was read. Further compounding the humiliation was Command's decision not only to send the treaty signing across Galactic Command on frequency channels, but also throughout the Antarian Sanctum. Antarian feelings mattered very little with the war over. Ross snapped back to reality. He was not commanding ESS-14 at the present time and tucked away in a little pit bar in the mothership's belly. It was as if the same blue haze hung over the tightly packed bar. Lindy, holding the mugs high in the air, moved his large 240-pound frame through the crowd. Ross stood as his second-in-command made his way back to the small round table. John, I swear you need a level one security clearance to pass through those idiots out there. I had my pocket picked three times, my ass pinched twice, and some barge freighter from Zosma tried to explain how she had cosmic prevail dust for only 15 marquees. Yeah, so what's the complaint, Lindy? Ross took the bright blue brumac to his lips. Not bad for a mothership's beer, but not as rich as the stuff found on the open trade routes before the war. I told you this place would be a good diversion for us. Well, I can't believe it's actually over. No more fighting. Lindy smacked his lips. They've shipped in this brumac. I was just thinking that, said Ross, looking around the loud, darkened pit. There are more women here than you want to know about. Half of them are loaded with transmuted ELO viruses. Whoa, just what I need. Lindy took in more Brumac, 
spend a month in some metafac having my innards snipped by some genetic strand slicer. Ross nodded as he continued to scan the pit. He remembered the tall blonde he had met here with Keller and how he had never seen her again. He was away from ESS-14 for three days back then until his propulsion engineer Frank Muldoon and some third-rank personnel dragged him and Keller out of a docked pleasure ship, a docked pleasure ship before the ship left port. He smiled when he thought about the pleasure ship. What are you grinning about? asked Lindy as he looked around the pit. I was just thinking back to the last time I was on the mother ship, said Ross. He stroked his beard stubble. Oh, I bet, said Lindy as both men surveyed the bar. Where do you think they'll send us next, John? Ross raised his finger. He was looking at two young women with looped ringed ears and raised hair, neatly woven like a fabric. What do you think of raised hair, Lindy? Lindy turned around. I'm not looking at the hair. Ah, neither am I. The women were dressed in silver metallic shorts and were alone. Ross stood and started across the pit. On the prowl, there he goes, full battle alert, shouted Lindy as he raised the mug to his lips again, full battle alert. As Ross began his move across the bar, two younger third ranks appeared and the raised hair ladies were escorted away. He turned and looked back at his dark-eyed friend. Okay, sirrah, sirrah. Well, I knew that was too good to be true. He held his broom back. Where are we going? Where's Admiral Liebert sending ESS-14? Yeah, that was the question. Lindy, Galactic Command has 506 planets in four space sectors. It's not to mention our outposts, colony vessels, and non-aligned planets, as well as the Antarian-occupied territory. And you want me to tell you where Ebert is sending us? Yeah. After four years of war, we should be sent on a vacation. Map space. Visit the non-aligned planets we know little about. We deserve an assignment like that. Those Antarian bastards cost us too many lives. Ross lifted his broom back into the air. May the Antarians never rise from the ashes, nor even try. All comes down to Marquis, Lindy, said Ross, still searching the bar. The Antarians were broke. Well, everybody needs a benefactor. They'll be back as soon as the coffers are full. No matter what they might have said in all the surrender ceremonies, I don't trust them. Oh, John, they were beaten and beaten badly. Even if they were funded, how could they even bother us again? Their home planet is in ruins, their fleet in shambles, and the settlements occupied. I have it on good authority that Gates wanted to put all their upper command on prison planets, but the group admirals turned up the heat thought it might look bad with the non-aligned planets. Well, Gates is the top dog, said Lindy. He heads the command group. He's been renominated and elected by the group. Do you think if he sent all the Antarians away for good that he'd still be where he is? Oh, I hear you. And he's just a puppet. If that's what you're saying. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. He saved his own hide instead of doing the right thing. Now we may have to face it all over again. How many lives will be lost because of that decision? He's left them free to plot and start the conflict all over again. It's ridiculous. Ross looked over his shoulder and in the blue light saw a short woman with trim silver hair walk into the bar. She was dressed formally in a green two-piece day suit and she waved at Ross. Oh God, that's Nancy Burke. Lindy turned. I knew I'd catch her here. She looks like hell. They stood as she approached the table. 
computer clipboard for writing in her hand. She had lost weight and her skin had a pale, matted appearance. Well, 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 I see the schooner sweepers have brought in space junk. Ross gently pecked his old friend on the cheek. Can't keep that viewer bender's clipboard away from you, can you? Asked Lindy as he shook her hand. Have I got a surprise for you, space rogues? Ross pulled up a chair for her but remained concerned about her frail appearance. How long has it been, Nancy? Ross leaned back and crossed his legs. Can I get your broom, Mac? How are you feeling? Are you all right? One question at a time, Commander. First, 15 months, right before you went out to encounter that Antarian who was starting his own little empire. Ah, Commander Zariok and his defiance of the Antarian command. I thought we had him over on our side, but he headed into deep space. Deep is not deep enough. <laughs> Well, that's a story I'd like to bend. It's all wrapped up in a command intelligence file, said Nancy. Ross uncrossed his legs and leaned toward her. How did you find out about Zariok? That was classified. No comment, she said. The answer to your second question is no, and I'm on a damned required diet from my doctor. Anything serious? asked Lindy. Oh no, just the usual maladies of pushing 50, she said. Our dealings with Zariark, Ross moved closer to her. The Zariark affair is classified. Word leaks out, Commander. Now that you're this big battle hero. Ross smiled. That's old news, Nancy. I know you have political connections, big political connections. Probably why I've been chosen to be on your next voyage. What? A viewer bender on an explorer spaceship? Something off frequency with that image, no offense. Lindy laughed, lifted his boom act to his lips. We don't even know where the hell we're going. Something big is up, said Nancy. Ross laughed and looked at Lindy. She might be revealing command voyage orders. War is finished. The battles are over. There's nothing big left, Nancy. Well, it's important enough for Admiral Gates to personally push me on this voyage. Really? Now you pique my curiosity. We were just saying how easy things were going to be for us from now on. You sure you want to be on something big? Ross pointed at her, thinking that someone had fed her a line about this being a big voyage. I've hardly ever been off the mothership, John. She thought for a moment, and her blue eyes brightened. This is just what I need right now, to get away. Nancy, if you have any knowledge of Voyage 19 and our dealings with Commander Zariak, you should know that an Explorer spaceship can be a hazardous assignment. I'm aware of that, but I figure any man who could survive the Antarian War, and in as many battles as you both were in, will survive whatever mission Gates orders you on. Orders are orders, John, said Lindy with a big smile. He finished the brumac and wrapped the mug on the wooden table. I have yet to receive any orders. You should begin cataloging your career, John. People would be interested. All the planets you've seen before and during the war, why we have frequency reports back to command. Ross was not happy about a civilian being on ESS-14. Nancy smiled and held his hand briefly. Maybe they'll send you in search of non-human intelligent life, with all the planets and settlements recorded and no contact with a Zorkastrian life form. Ross studied her blue eyes as she spoke and was convinced she was hinting ESS-14's new orders involved checking for the Zorka. Any member of Galactic Command would have kept such information to himself. Even more than that, he doubted whether bringing a viewer bender on a voyage was a good idea. Lindy, the brumac kicking in, spoke in an official voice. 
Are you referring to intelligent life independently evolved? Exactly. All the planets, said Nancy. So much independently involved life abounding, but no Zorka. True. Now, said Lindy, humanity spread out over this portion of the galaxy and we diverged into such radically different societies. Even the Antarians are an evolved race within the human umbrella. The human umbrella, said Ross, grinning. You ought to use that in your bed, Nancy. Well, why is it just one independently evolved intelligent race? Can you tell me that? Ross's face tightened and he kept his distance. If you have command voyage information, then tell me right now. She smiled and both men stood with her. Things will be changing sooner than you think, Ross from Markham 4. See you both aboard ship. Ross gently squeezed her icy hand and studied her tired eyes. As a friend, I would love to have you aboard. As a commander, I have to protest it. This is a fait accompli, sorry. Ross faced Lindy as she turned and moved slowly through the bar pit. I don't like this. Oh, she'll never get aboard, John. That's the viewer bender in her talking. When does command routinely allow civilians aboard an ESS vessel? Unless they're scientists or assigned personnel like Sebastian. Yeah, but Sebastian is an excellent cook. Ross watched Nancy disappear through the crowd and into the foggy shadows. He shook his head. I'm gonna fight this. Well, you should be able to squelch it. A couple of blondes caught Ross's eye. Lindy looked in the same direction and smiled. Back on course to our primary mission here tonight. Full speed ahead here, Lindy. Full speed ahead. Chapter 2 as the hours passed, Ross could not figure why he had hardly touched his broom act, but the animated Lindy entertained two good-looking but very boring women from the mothership's administrative offices. Ross listened to Lindy's yarns about distant voyages. He had heard the same story a dozen times before and rolled his eyes as Lindy embellished every incident, raising his broom act mug as he spoke. The woman sat like two schoolgirls in class, and Ross wondered if they'd ever been off the mother ship. Another broomac! shouted Lindy. Ross counted six mugs on the table. He smiled. At least Lindy was unwinding after the war's end. I'll get it, Lindy. Ross checked his counter. Three in the morning in the darkened pack pit shook with loud topaz brass music and a grind of uninterrupted useless conversation. He maneuvered his way the long polished bar and looked down the pink and green neon moldings at the wide diversity of space travelers in the mirror maze. Four Brumax. Four? asked the brewmaster. Yeah, I said four. His tab appeared in bright green digits on his debit sheet screen. The brewmaster took the order from a spherical chrome formulator and set the tall frosted blue mugs on a clear tray. Ross nodded and added a tip to the debit sheet. But as he stayed at the bar, he worried about Nancy Burke's appearance and her vague references to the Zorka. He was about to pick up the Brumac tray when he saw two space rogues giving Lindy a hard time back at the table. He spun from the bar like a ship leaving space dock at breakaway speed. One of the rogues took a swing at Lindy, but his second in command slammed his fist into the man's jaw. Both rogues were on him now as the women scattered. Ross vaulted one table, then another. He took a leaping dive into the air, clutching the first rogue at the collar, and disabled him at the knee with a vicious kick. 
as Lindy pummeled the second one, Ross displayed his proficiency 14 defense skills and outmaneuvered the rogue, beating him to the ground. As he turned toward Lindy's attacker, command security in their black and silver uniforms, holding drag beamers upward, appeared in the crowd. Ross knew he had only about 15 or 20 seconds before security arrived. He pulled the rogue back and with a series of quick thrusts, spun around, landing two well-placed jabs in the man's midsection. The rogue collapsed as security pointed a snub-nosed silver drack in his face. Ross, about to identify himself, turned as the three security men next produced restraining harnesses. Glowing red energy fields surrounded him and he and Lindy were led through the pit. Hey, these roads attacked my second in command. Tell that to the administrator who gets these cases by the hour, said the first rank. I demand to talk to Admiral Liebert, said Ross. We are command officers, shouted Lindy. Sure. The first rank pushed them out of the pit. Ross struggled within the belt and looked at his blue fatigue suit. A command at John B. Ross, Explorer Ship 14. Yeah, and I'm the command group admiral, said the first rank. Where's your uniform, commander? We're on extended off-vessel time, said Lindy. And if you weren't such a thickhead, you would have checked our scans. Shut up, said the second rank. They were marched into the village courtyard and over to a nearby conveyor tube. Ross kept arguing with them, drawing the attention of the passerby in the square as they were shoved into the tube. Level 28, Section 5, said the first rank. Ross, pushed to the seat, quickly stood. I'll have your ass for this. What's your name? The man nodded to his subordinates and they expanded the restraining belts over his and Lindy's mouth. He breathed through his nose as the bright red glow around the belt matched his seething anger. The guy did not know that Ross could have him demoted ten times and working on a barge vessel outside the Andromedan waste sector. For three hours they sat in a containment tub somewhere in section five of the mothership. At least the restraints were off. Ross paced the stark green booth and continually complained about the security men. Morning had come and Lindy had slept through the security wall as Ross shouted. I would request my right to be scanned. I would request my right to representation. A sparkling gold opening slowly formed within the green field. He closed his mouth when the entire security barrier collapsed into a standard 8x10 room with white security field tubes. More baffling was the presence in the hallway of Admiral Ebert and three group admirals in their gold uniforms. He nudged Lindy. His second-in-command opened his eyes and held his temples. Oh, my head is spinning. I'll get you to the Metafac later, Lindy. Ebert. Well, the same to you. What? Ebert? Asked Lindy, squinting. He sat up when he saw Ebert. Ross helped him to his feet. Ross spoke out of the corner of his mouth. I think we're sunk, Lindy. Lindy and Ross stood to attention as the corridor field dropped again and the four men entered the room. The entire security wall went up once again. Ross, saluting quickly, moved up to Ebert and the other admirals. Sir, I, I, I can explain all this. Problems off vessel, John? asked Ebert. The other group admirals smiled. He knew them all. Admirals Glover, Mackenzie, and Anderson. Mackenzie, his old friend from the Altair Command Institute, winked at him. This had nothing to do with the bar arrest. 
Lindy, his large body rigid, raised his brows at Ross. By now, of course, said the white-haired little Admiral Glover. You have surmised that we're here on a mission. Yes, sir. You're going on a long voyage, John, said Ebert. Sir? Admiral Anderson, a man Ross did not know well, stepped forward and looked at the other men. They all nodded one by one. Commander, I uh, don't think we've been formally introduced. I'm David Anderson. He had a strong grip and also shook hands with Lindy. Sir? Gentlemen, we have a multi-faceted problem that must be addressed in this rather unorthodox way. Security must be maintained, and what I'm about to tell you uh, has galactic implications. Are you aware of the Nebula Planet? asked Ebert. No, sir. Well, the Nebula Planet, said Anderson, his blue eyes tightening, is at the farthest distance of the explored galaxy technically a part of the third sector. The nearest outpost is planet Axian Baroma 7. I heard of transport ships making the swing by there. By Baroma, that is, said Ross. It's a desert planet, right? That is correct, said Anderson. Command, if I'm not mistaken, does not have an official position out there. Well, we have a governor of sorts, uh, if he's still out there. It's so far removed, nobody really follows it, John. Baroma is listed as one of the aligned planets, but in reality, you could call it unaligned. The nearest base is approximately six days travel time at voyage speed from Axiom Baroma. The nebula planet is three weeks beyond Baroma, Commander, in the opposite direction. It's at the outermost edge of the explored galaxy. Three weeks out. Ross pictured ESS-14 cruising through deep space away from the civilized galaxy. From Baroma, you're saying? Yes. You'll be getting underway in four hours, said Anderson. Sir, <laughs> my vessel is in spaceport. Systems are being updated after the war. Ebert shook his head. Was, Commander. We have had specialized teams working on ESS-14 for the last 16 hours. Vessel is in breakaway port 11. Ross smiled. Something amusing, Commander? Asked the taller Ebert. Now I'm just amazed at your proficiency, Admiral. May I uh, ask the nature of my orders, sir? Mackenzie stepped forward. Anderson motioned him by. Mackenzie was a fleet commander during the war, only a couple years older than Ross, and had taught a course on military tactics. Ross knew him well and had spoken with him at the war ceremonies back on Antares 6. Mackenzie pushed his fingers through his wavy, rusted hair before he spoke. Admiral? Ross wanted to call him Mac. Mackenzie shook hands with Lindy and then faced Ross. John, you guys don't waste any time relaxing. <laughs> another off vessel, another bar pit hidden away. Well, apparently not far enough, sir. Ross pictured Mackenzie drinking with him at an outpost bar before one of the Antarian battles. He remembered how Mackenzie got involved with a woman who ended up dying on ESS-45 in the ensuing battle. John, I'm not going to share everything with you right now. Well, I figured that. When you get underway, you'll have classified rendezvous orders from your ship's Polonus. At rendezvous, you'll receive your final orders, sealed, of course. Custody orders are in the hands of ESS-27 Commander Donaldson. You'll input those orders into your Polonus. Please remember that even at the distance of Axiom Baroma, messages to the Council could take 46 hours. By the time you arrive on the Nebula planet, you could be totally on your own. 
A message from that distance takes eight days to reach us, so double that time for the return message. Admiral Glover and Senior Command move forward. Your record stands unmatched, Commander. When the history of the Antarian conflict is fully written, your name will be prominent. Sir, I was one of many people who fought. Glover paused and nodded. I appreciate your modesty, John, but there's no other choice for the man to lead this voyage. This mission could be of historical proportions, and I don't say that lightly. Admiral Gates is personally involved in the logistics and has been for some time. You'll see what I mean when you get your orders. Does this mean we're officially out of the tub? Glover and the rest of the admirals grin. Yeah, you're out of the tub. Even the arresting personnel are unaware of our presence here. I do have to state the risk. Uh, things could get... I thrive on risk, Admiral. He winked at Lindy, who rolled his eyes. That's why you're commanding this mission. Good luck. Each of the admirals shook hands with Ross and Lindy. Ross felt as if this were a battlefield suicide mission. The admiral saluted and the security field went down, and then they were gone. Lindy looked into the hallway and turned to Ross, rubbing his wrists from the removed restraining belt. Why do I think we just got hoodwinked? Because probably we just did. Those restraints were tight. If I see that little first rank again, I'll pop him. Farthest edge of the known galaxy. Come on, John. Showering us with all those compliments and then booting us to the edge of the galaxy for what? We don't even know, or for that matter, we don't even know what Donaldson's sealed orders are when we rendezvous at Baroma. Well, we'll get our preliminary orders on the ship, he said, looking into the corridor. In the hall, his own vessel's husky, nubby-haired security chief led a contingent of his own men. He wondered if Kaczynski was still drunk. Crutch, said Lindy. Come to bail us out? I won't even tell you where they drag me from. The lines of his unshaven face tightened as he turned to Ross. I thought we were off vessel for two or more days, John. What have you been told? asked Ross. My orders from Admiral Ebert are to uh, escort you to SS-14 in silence. Ah, oh. <laughs> we'll be taking a freight tube and enter port station 11, a construction barge. My orders, he said, taking out a drag beamer, are to get you to ESS-14. Anything or anyone getting in the way of that mission will be killed. What? asked Lindy. Have they lost their collective minds? So, you know nothing of the voyage mission. John, said Kaczynski, you'll have to shut up, sir. Ross grinned at Kaczynski, shrugged his shoulders, and followed the men out of the containment cell. Before they reached the village courtyard, Kaczynski veered into a side alley. Ahead were freight movers and logistical personnel. As they moved in silence, the growing magnitude of this mission was apparent, not just in the distance of the nebula planet, but Ross had never seen a security ploy like this employed on a command officer and his second-in-command. They stepped into freight elevator 16 and rose upward inside the mother ship. Ross wondered if the Antarians were already violating the peace treaty, or maybe Nancy's alluding to the Zorka had special meaning to his trip. Being out at the edge of galactic civilization without fleet backup would make Ross and his crew vulnerable to whatever awaited them. Chapter 3 The long orange hull of the barge freighter moved a hundred meters above the gray-brown hull's observation areas and lighted compartments. Ross, understanding his eventual destination, pondered the nebula, a remnant of an exploded star covering the skies above the distant planet. 
ventures to the third sector away from the civilized galaxy were reserved for reconnaissance missions and scientific survey parties. Something must have gone wrong out there. A survey party might be in need of evacuation or supplies. Ross had never heard of the Nebula planet, nor did he fully understand the connotation. Because of security, the orders, according to the admirals, would come in two stages. The anticipation, combined with this insane silence order, frazzled his nerves. Crutch, I need to speak with Ebert. We're supposed to remain silent. Ross leaned against the cold window, talking with his security chief's reflection. Ah, bullshit. He turned to Lindy. Lindy, what the hell is a nebula planet? Lindy grinned. A planet with a nebula? Ah, funny. Why would there be a nebula gas? Where's the star? Why wasn't the planet destroyed in the explosion? I'll have to look at the reports, John. Planets don't orbit nebulas. My point exactly. Ross's clenched fist moved down the glass. Listen, I don't like not being told. And getting sealed orders when we're out there in the middle of nowhere isn't my idea of useful information. A multitude of antennas and red flashing lights were silhouetted against the spaceport's upper grid fence. The port cast an azure green glow over the blackened sky as the barge freighter crossed over dozens of various vessels of many shapes and sizes cruising above the runways. Ross was drawn to the far end of the mothership, past the complex girder network to his own ship. As majestic as a Rondorian wafting bird with wide, blue sculptured rear wings and a spherical command center, ESS-14 had a long, tapering body. It was anchored securely in the docking bay, but dozens of workships hovered around its Brighton hull. At least 50 external technicians, tiny repair scooters and maintenance shuttles readied the ship. The vessel was his for almost five years before the Antarian War, and although he had commanded other vessels, he had an odd attraction to this ship. Kuczynski brought the barge alongside the starboard sky pilot base under the wingspan. Out of the portalite's glare, the ship returned to its usual light blue color. Only a few people gazed out the linear observation platforms above the bay doors. Ross thought he saw Jim Morris, one of his lead pilots, standing next to the Sky Pilot ships inside. As the barge nudged toward the airlock barrier, Ross turned to Kaczynski. Am I in charge yet? Only step aboard, sir. Ross nodded and peered upward to the ship's wings, the underbelly extending back to the bay girders. Once they were safely inside the thick, fingered metal airlocks, and the inside pressure was equalized to that of the main ship, the barge doors opened. Ross followed Kaczynski quickly, boots echoing across the metal floor. Kaczynski spoke to Polonis, and the ship's computer performed a quick scan on everyone before they officially entered ESS-14. Kuczynski folded his arms as he stood before the viewer. What's the matter, Polonis? You in a bad mood today? Uh, no, sir, said Polonis. Scans are complete. Feel free to come aboard, gentlemen. The internal bay doors rumbled, and in the brighter light, Ross shielded his eyes. Crew members saluted as he stepped inside the ship, and then he turned to Kaczynski. Now I'm officially aboard. Just following Admiral Ebert's orders, said Kaczynski. Ross looked around the spacious sky pilot bays. Fifteen sky pilot ships, still singed from the battle, were lined in a long row across this area that experienced so much activity during the war. 
No one seemed overly concerned about the mission. Even Jim Morris, who had a level one security clearance, casually talked with some of his Sky Pilot sector maintenance men about 12 meters away. Uh, John, said Polonis. Ross turned toward the speaker. I've been told by Admiral Ebert to convene an immediate meeting with all personnel with a level one clearance. Okay, one hour in the locus. Norm Gannon, one of Ross's personal aides, moved out of the propulsion room corridor. Commander, I was just informed by Polonis that you were returning to the ship and that we are getting underway. Oh, that's correct, Norm. What do you need, sir? Ah, this uniform in my cabin. I'm going to shower and be at a locust meeting in an hour. Yes, sir, I'll get on it right away. Gannon headed back toward the propulsion room. Polonis, inform all other level one people. Should we restrict knowledge of the meeting? Asked the computer. For what? Asked Lindy from the side. No one's going anywhere. I didn't know you were commanding this vessel, Mr. Lindsay, replied the computer. I think we need some reconstructive surgery on the Polonis links in this vessel, said Lindy, moving behind Gannon. I'm going to my cabin, John. Commander, the restriction problem? Don't worry about it, Polonis. When will we have all personnel aboard the ship? Within the hour. People have been ordered back all day, said Polonis. We leave port in three hours and ten minutes. Ross nodded his head. Lindy moved into the sloping propulsion corridor and walked toward the clear conveyor tubes beyond. Jim Morris followed. Ross knew what the next question would be. Level one meeting, Morris whispered, squinting his dark eyes. We're getting underway in approximately three hours, Jim. I want your people on standby. What's going on, Commander? You'll find out as much as they want to tell us at the Locust meeting. I'll see you. Nancy Burke, winded and fatigued, rounded a small shuttle inside the bay doors. She managed a half-smile. Aren't you going to welcome me aboard, Commander? Nancy, he said, shaking his head. You did get clearance. Right here. She lifted two silver security discs out of her pack and then held her hand over her droopy eyes. Ross tried to steady her. Are you all right, Nancy? She straightened and nodded her head. I'm all right, I, and I do have clearance. I'm officially assigned to ESS-14 for the duration of this mission. You can push the disc into an activation slot. Not necessary. Miss Burke does have access, John. I have to wonder why they sent a viewer bender on a, on a mission like this, she asked, grinning. Listen, Commander, believe me, this mission is going to require someone here to bend it. Then uh, you best brief me. Ross liked her, and having her aboard would make an otherwise long and dull voyage interesting. I know what you know. You have connections, my friend, said Ross. I do. Her eyelids still hung heavy. Nancy, you're all right in a pig's ass. Ross steadied her again. I just need to rest for a second and go to my cabin. Sure. Ross walked over and hit the button near an adjacent speaker. Polonis. Yes, sir. Polonis, I want S.R. Schaefer down here to escort Miss Nancy Burke to her cabin. Instituting command. Schaefer's name echoed throughout the bay and into the corridor. S.R. Schaefer to the Sky Pilot Bays. S.R. Schaefer to the Sky Pilot Bays. Thank you, Polonis, said Ross, looking back to Nancy. I'm having one of my aides, Melissa Schaefer, come down here. She'll bring you to your cabin. Cabin A-16. You're right across the wingspan in the corner. Sixteen is more like a suite, Nancy. He did not know whether to steady her again. Most of the uh, wing cabins are more like group barracks for the crew. I think I'll need to talk to the ship's physician. Uh, who is it, Pfeiffer? 
When we were in the bar pit, you mentioned you couldn't have a brumac because I will speak to the ship's doctor about that. Dr. Mike Pfeiffer. He saw the young Melissa Schaefer in her magenta uniform scurrying from the propulsion corridor. Yes, Commander, she said as she approached. Melissa, I'm assigning you as an aide to Miss Burke here on this voyage. Melissa smiled and looked at Nancy. Yes, sir. She's in cabin A-16. Nancy, I have a level one meeting in less than an hour. If you wish a tour of the vessel after that meeting. It's very late, John. Perhaps tomorrow or maybe the next day. We have plenty of time, I think, from what I sense. You sense correctly. Time is the one thing we do have plenty of on this voyage. If you need me, contact my ship's Polonus. Thank you, John. Ross held her for a moment and started across the bay. And enjoy your meeting. Enjoy? A level one security meeting rarely brings enjoyment. And you can quote me on that. Ross continued down the corridor, but as her condition worsened, he had confidence that Pfeiffer would find answers. Chapter 4 the commander's cabin, only 12 meters under the locust, boarded the walking corridor and the conveyor tube. The outer cabin was used mostly for convening small meetings, while the more comfortable living area contained an arch cambient reality chamber and a larger viewing screen. Sleeping quarters and a shower abutted the rear cambient chamber wall. From his bed, Ross could, if necessary, leap up a spiral metal stairway and emerge center locust next to his command consoles. He exited the cleansing shower, securing his blue fatigues and acceptable uniform on long voyages. From the storage bin, he pulled out a white compact containing the communications link and a smaller computer directly frequency to Polonus. He attached it over his shoulders and upper arms. Visual check. An image of the locust appeared on an air screen less than a meter away. Clarity 100%. Said a generic, unlinked voice. Frequency check, Lindsay. His second-in-command at the busy Locust Science area turned and yawned. John, are you sure you don't want to hold this meeting 12 hours from now? Ross smiled. No, I'd like to. Who's up there? Well, we're waiting for Muldoon, a problem with the schooner sweepers. He says he'll have his guys replacing the part before we hit breakaway. Make sure there are backup parts. The schooner's been giving us too much trouble lately. This is going to be a long trip, Lindy. We don't need to be banging into that space crap. Agreed, said Lindy, chuckling. I'll be up there in a few minutes. Ross moved back to his bedside table and looked at a few family pictures. He pushed the green button and a group picture taken at his parents' home on Vega 14 last year came to life. It was a two-minute shot of their 35th anniversary. Ross's smile dropped at the sight of his silver-haired father, still an intelligence officer in, in Galactic Command. He's a wonderful man. His father appeared vital, as did his thinner mother. His smile returned as he looked at his younger brothers, Wayne and Cappy, and hitting his sister, Deborah. It was a wonderful week back at home, except for the fact the old man left two days into the visit, another secret intelligence mission. And now Ross was out on what he perceived to be a potentially dangerous voyage. Even though his initial orders were forthcoming, the nebula planet loomed too mysterious and too far away. He hit the button and the family picture returned to the beginning, frozen as he headed to the outer room. With the end of the war, Ross thought he could have shed the exhausted and charged, war-weary feeling, that sense of wanting to sleep, yet being so battle-ready he couldn't sleep. 
the cabin door open, revealing the clear conveyor tube extending down the body of the ship. He stepped into the adjacent lower walking car at his blue grit surface and headed for the locus. The tube was indirectly lit from below as he moved up the ramp into the locus level. A small set of stairs led to an amber archway around the green locus doors. He gazed up at command sphere of planets in blue and the designation above the archway, ESS-14, locus area, authorized personnel. A high-pitched scanning beam cut into his eardrums and the doors opened. The extensive mothership hull behind the port bay girders filled the forward viewer. All personnel stood as Ross walked onto the upper deck's black grid rim. At ease, everyone. He crossed the rim, briefly looked down the stairs to his circular control station, but he stopped at the science station along the upper deck. Muldoon is on his way, John. Lindy, also in his blue fatigue, swiveled in his chair. With all the science and communication personnel cleared out of the meeting, the area consoles and monitors looked deserted. Well, did he replace those schooner parts? asked Ross. No, it was human error. You tell Maldoom we can't afford human error on this mission. Tell me what? asked the husky voice Maldoon as he entered the locusts from the conveyor tube. Ross's bearded propulsion engineer walked across the grid. Tell me that you're fired. Lindy smiled as Maldoon checked the monitors. Good. I want to take this torture ride into hell as much as I want a drack beam aimed at my crotch. Ross grinned and then fully laughed, joined by Lindy, shaking his head. Lindy pushed a few buttons on the console, but directed his comments at Maldoon. I'd like to see that. Listen, John, said Maldoon, do you have any idea where we're going? Polonis tells me destinations were already inputted into the navigation on your order. Well, I... And another thing, Ross smiled at Lindy. What about the coils? I had a bunch of schooner scrubbers fiddling with those coils. We're supposed to have a ten-day shutdown, not this quick fix. Ross moved down the steps to his own control area. The fix is in, Frank. Semi-circular monitors and consoles lined the sunken area, directly in the locust center. Five leather chairs were anchored to the translucent white floor, all facing the monitors. His own chair was up front, flanked by two large flat viewers and a small monitor screen below the slope leading to the forward viewer five meters away. Ross, in front of the viewer, faced his officers. Okay, uh, is everybody here? Commander Alvarez has not arrived, stated Polonis. All officers ascended the metal grid stairs to the commander's station. Well, please page here, Polonis, ordered Ross. Again? Again. Well, let's start the classification anyway. Kuczynski began. Lieutenant Commander Walter Kuczynski, uh, ESS 6599072, clearance level 1, password Alpha Libra 6. Cleared, said Polonis. As Jim Morris began his check, the upper walking corridor doors opened and Lieutenant Commander Mariah Alvarez, a small-framed young career officer with neatly trimmed brown hair, rushed on board. My apologies, Commander. I was late in coming aboard. No more late than the rest of us, Lieutenant. Put yourself on report. She stopped at the stairs and her dark eyes reflected confusion. Sir? Ross was in no mood for insubordination and bypassed her question. Security clearance procedure, Commander. Commander Mariah Alvarez, clearance level 1, ESS number 1698745, individual password, bright star. Cleared, said Polonis. 
Ross waited as everyone else was cleared. Then he stepped in front of the inner group as they formed an arc around the monitors. This mission is not your average survey or planet contact mission. Lord knows why we've been chosen to travel to the edge of the known galaxy so soon after the war's end, but we have. The nebula planet seems to be the focus of this mission. We'll be rendezvousing with ESS-27 on Axiom Baroma 7. I'm sure we'll know more about this in a few minutes. The security fields buzzed around the locus and he turned toward the main screen. Polonis, engage vessel mission orders. Engaging, Commander, answered the computer. The forward screen, tinted blue, buzzed with yellow and orange serial numbers crisscrossing the surface. Then the display flashed red and an override frequency signified a classified AZ transmission. As Ross turned toward his console and typed in the code, Admiral Ebert came on the screen. Vessel Explorer Spaceship 14, your ship has been chosen to travel to the Nebula Planet. So named not because of its actually being a nebula, but because of its proximity to Nebula EG-1632, also known by astronomers as the Panhandle Nebula. Nebula EG-1632 is actually farther away from the nebula planet system than a typical binary. Planet GSS-11-891, the nebula planet, orbits the star Algorian a class 8 blue star with a year equal to 1.9 galactic years and is 1,700 light years from Mothership 13. There are 11 other planets in this system. Planet GSA 11891 has a thin atmosphere with no sign of sustained life. Terrestrial protective gear is needed on the surface. The oddest observation, even with an extended position for a potential binary, is the complete lack of gravitational pull between the Algorian system and the nebula. Any compacted or collapsed star or gravity trough should have some effect on the system. Two galactic years ago, Command sent the first survey parties to study the nebula for a possible central gravity trough or compacted star within the nebula. And to understand the nebula's relationship to planet GSA-11891, colony engineers from the mothership were ordered to construct a habitable living area and laboratory for studying the nebula. Six months later, a party of 35 volunteers from the various space institutes arrived on Axiom Baroma 7. They were transported a distance to the nebula planet by a supply ship provided by the Contron Syndicate. Additional supplies and foodstuffs were also carried on this mission. The Antarian War did not affect their operations. On 14 Biogress 2153 GT, the Contron vessel arrived in orbit around the nebula planet. Shuttle vessels began delivering personnel and supplies to the surface compartments. All was normal when the freighter left and the scientific party began its work. Dr. Ellison and a team of five set out on 10 October 2154 GT from the Axiom Baroma 7 station and arrived on schedule 23 days later. As you know, Dr. Ellison's reputation is unmatched. A pupil of Ronald Eldridge, his theories on time dilation from non-matter sources have been added to Eldridge's discoveries. Dr. Ellison was anxious to explore the meaning of the linear energy moving into the third sector, and he was to carry the project further. Additional probes and actual manned expeditions were deemed necessary and began on 26 Columbia 2154 GT. The first sign of actual difficulty began sometime later, 13 Planeta 2154, 
when command received notification on the AZ frequency of another probe loss and all six occupants missing in the nebula. The report was subcaptioned by Dr. Ellison himself. Section Order 3215 was issued by this office. Further manned exploration of the nebula was to cease. Unfortunately, no messages were received from the nebula planet until 18 Sol 2155 GT. Dr. Ellison and three members of his team disappeared into the nebula on 19th March 2155 GT. All remaining personnel were ordered evacuated. The Contron Syndicate was ordered to send out a freighter immediately. However, communication became almost non-existent because of increased interference of additional linear energy sources having moved into the third sector. The freighter is overdue by four weeks at the time of this message, 9 May 2155 GT. And there is an additional complication. Intelligence reveals an Antarian involvement. Yeah, I should have guessed that, said Ross, glancing back at his crew. Antarian gunner vessels were chased from the Axian Baroma system by sky pilot ships. John, what we fear is another Antarian involvement in this situation, which is not needed with a signed peace treaty. When you arrive on Axian Baroma 7, you will receive your rendezvous orders from a coded intelligence box, now in the custody of Commander Donaldson. The code for the box has been placed in the retrieval section of Polonus 756A. The final leg of your journey to the Nebula planet will be with an accompanying command vessel. You will be the senior officer, the accompanying vessel's commander, reporting to you. Finally, Nancy Burke, the viewer bender aboard your vessel, is a historic observer. And I can tell you this is of historic significance. All cooperation and access within reason will be given to Nancy Burke. You will understand why when you receive your final orders on Axian Baroma. You and your crew were selected for this mission because of your outstanding record in the Antarian conflict and your post-war experience. John, I'm counting on you and your crew. This voyage, the 24th of ESS-14, could be significant, not only for your ship, but for all of Galactic Command. Good luck. Ross looked at Lindy. Wow. Well, you got that right. Commander, said Muldoon, how will these nebula fields affect the Eldridge Quill performance? Well, I'm sure Dr. Allison could tell you that if he was here, Frank, but Polonis will have to do, said Ross. I think I've just been insulted, said the computer. You have, Commander, according to the data transmission, there could be some fluctuation in Quill performance, especially from a gravity trough within the collapsed star. Sounds like they didn't find either, said Lindy, accessing the data on his screen. Muldoon walked over and leaned toward Lindy's screen. What about those energy lines, Polonis? Well, it's very possible, considering the already diverted communications. So you're saying, Polonis, we could have travel problems as we approach the planet, asked Ross. Possible. It would depend on the intensity of these lines. Compensation is possible to a degree, but it could be a rough ride. And it could affect the instruments. We don't know. Any other ideas on this? Asked Ross. Stepping back to his command chair, he sat down and swiveled to face them. I'm concerned about the Antarian component, said Kuczynski. A valid concern, said Ross, crossing his legs. What the hell are they doing there, Axie and Baroma? asked Jim Morris. Axie and Baroma and the Nebula planet are even farther away from the Antarians and the mothership. Why start anything with that treaty signed? 
Well, there has to be more to this, John, said Muldoon. Those energy lines from the nebula are conveniently straight. Would a natural phenomenon do that? Ross shrugged his shoulders. I suppose we'll have to wait until we get that coated box on Axiom. I don't think it's just the Antarians, said Mariah. Ross, still upset by her tardiness, half listened. They could send anyone out to that nebula planet to gather information or pick up personnel. There has to be more to this. Ah, you're always reading ulterior motives into things, said the crusty Muldoon. They've told us two important facts. The Antarians have stuck their noses into this, and Dr. Ellison is missing. Ellison's reputation is known throughout the galaxy. What more do you need, Mariah? The coded box? Exactly, said Ross. We'll continue to think about the implications of this, he said, gazing at the clock on his compact shoulder extension. We'll be getting underway in two hours and 52 minutes. Once we reach breakaway, you can hit the pillows. I know everyone here is pushed to the limit. Unless there are any overriding concerns, I would ask you to report to your sections and maintain security about all of this. I'll make a general crew announcement sometime tomorrow. Word will get around from the course settings that we're heading for the Axiom Baroma system. I'll explain what I need tomorrow. Dismissed. As they dispersed, Lindy stood and then walked up to Ross, staring at the forward view of the mothership's hull and the stars beyond. Well, I thought I might be somewhere else at this hour, said Lindy, holding out a monitor clipboard. He wrote something onto a readout pad as Ross put his hand on his shoulder. Lindy, once we complete this mission, Ebert will give us as much off-vessel time as we want. I'll show you some places, the uh, Mirac Outer Planets. The, the Mirac Outer Planets will make the mothership pit bar look like a nursery school. You can count on it. Sometimes I wonder what the ultimate goal is, John. What do you mean? Mission upon mission, battle upon battle. We just go about our duties, but what does it all mean? I didn't know you were a philosopher. Lindy half smiled and peered out at the hull. Well, I'm not, but if we're following after the Zorker... I wonder what they'll think of us. That is the ultimate question. Rosh usually experienced the wonder of leaving Spaceport and obtaining a breakaway speed. Now he only wanted to return to his cabin and sleep. He stood next to the Locust Observation Dome, adjacent to Lindy's upper-level station. Inside the fully manned Locust, science and communication personnel conferred with Lindy while across the rim, Muldoon and a few of his people were monitoring coil output levels. Navigation staff checked course patterns with Polonis directly across from the observation dome. Ross moved down the metal stairs and back to his Locust consoles. The ship's rear image was on the right monitor, with a view of ESS-14 from the outer mothership on the second monitor, and the forward image screen matched what he had seen from the observation dome. Commencing preparation procedure, said Mariah from behind. Thank you, Lieutenant. Muldoon's bearded face came on the left monitor. Commander. Yes, Frank. I want to report the schooner sweepers are at 100%. So I don't have to worry about having space debris sailing onto the locust. The tug pulled him away from the mothership and he felt the lurch. Who's operating that tug? asked Lindy. A maintenance shuttle pilot? Ross smiled and moved into his chair. Norm Gannon appeared to his right. Preparations are complete, said Mariah. Acknowledged. You need more coffee, Commander? asked Norm. Ross thought about it for a second and shook his head. Now, as soon as we hit breakaway, I'm going to try and catch a few winks. Thank you, Norm. 
No, I'm leaving a message for Nancy Burke. I'd like to give her a tour of the vessel sometime tomorrow evening. Time? Uh, let's set it up for seven. Anything else, sir? No, I'm okay, Norma. Get some sleep yourself. Thank you, sir. We're all caught off guard with this mission. Ah, there's no doubt about that, said Ross as he leaned forward. All screens showed the same starry image as the tug broke away from ESS-14 and drifted forward on its own momentum. Readouts. The forward screen showed Ross data in orange and yellow letters. Rear screen. Most of the mothership appeared on the screen as they slowly floated to a safe distance. When the entire length of the massive ship was revealed, Polonis came on the speaker. We are ready for posturing. Well, okay, a line vessel, answered Ross as he stepped up to his consoles. Gil Webb, Lindy's section chief at the navigation station, double-checked the alignment. Course is implemented. All right, engage. The vessel gently glided forward. From their perspective, the mothership seemed to move away rapidly, and the rear screen soon filled with stars. Russ turned to Rip. The crusty, short-haired member of Lindy's communications section was a valuable utility man around the ship. Request command departure, Rip. Request in, John. He paused and listened in his silver earpiece. Request accepted. Plonus, breakaway speed in two minutes. Acknowledged. Well, here we go, John, said Lindy, his image in the corner of the left monitor as the coils hummed below. Why do I get a bad feeling about this mission? asked Ross. Lindy stood and placed his hands behind his neck. I think it will be unique and stand in the annals of galactic collective experience as a tribute to the human initiative. I think I'm going to be ill, said Ross, shaking his head, and he returned to his seat. He could hear the restraining belt settling in position around the locus as Polonis announced the impending change in ship speed. Breakaway speed in 40 seconds. Ross activated his own glowing red restraining belt, thinking briefly about being restrained at the pit bar earlier in the evening. Coils at full. Ross then saw Muldoon's face in the corner of the right monitor. Propulsion is ready. Breakaway speed in 10 seconds, said Polonis. Ross set the chair rigid as the rising coils resonated through his body. The equations constantly changed on the forward viewer and he sensed the backward sling condensing space all around them, distorting the stars into large glowing globs. Then they shot forward. According to the readouts, the mothership was now 14,000 kilometers away, then 50, then 500,000. In less than a minute, they were one astronomical unit, the distance of the planet Earth to its sun. The quickness of the velocity always impressed Ross. Ebert and the others were so far away instantly. Ross watched the elapsed clock reach three minutes and then he released his restraining belt. He stood and looked at Mariah. He figured she sensed he might place her on duty. You're on watch. Yes, sir. She abruptly turned her back to him. Ross climbed the rim stairs to Lindy as Muldoon wandered over. I'll be in my cabin. He moved toward the walking corridor. Oh, John, asked Lindy. Ross looked around. Nighty-night. Ross grinned and shook his head as they all laughed, and he trudged back to his cabin to get some sleep. Chapter 5 In his fatigued condition, Ross would have slept through a direct drac beam attack. Leaving the bedroom, he realized he had slept for ten hours. He squinted at his pale reflection in the amber-arched cambium chamber opening and notified the locust he would use the chamber for no more than an hour. 
Slowly he pulled the metallic magenta transit suit over his body. When he was sure he could breathe properly, he requested the unit's computer bring him out to his favorite hiking area. After the long, tumultuous night, he needed to gather his thought. From the forged confines of the Cambian chamber, he popped onto the mountainside and looked through the trees at the rock cliffs a few hundred feet above. He liked being on the trail in June, when the mountain laurel scents waved it through the fresh forest air. He plucked off one of the flowers, inhaled, and closed his eyes to the warming sun as he thought about his mission. If they had ordered Ellison out to the nebula planet, the scientific importance was paramount. He questioned as he turned and continued up the sloping rock trail the oddity of a nebula in close proximity to the planet, but with no gravitational pull. Still, such a conundrum did not require sending a scientist with Ellison's credentials and his team to the edge of the known galaxy. He lingered under the thick green foliage and vaulted over a series of rock-sculptured caves. Two things kept coming back to him as he gained elevation and viewed the valley through the tree branches. Either they had discovered an evolutionary scientific principle, something new in the fabric of space, or they had found evidence of the Zorka civilization. The thin, regular energy lines emitted from the nebula might indicate a terrestrial origin. He scurried up the exfoliated rocks to the cliff overhang, hiked through the woods to an orange observation tower at the summit. He quickly scaled the narrow metal ladder. Poking his head through the top, he crawled onto a metal grid and gazed out over the valley and surrounding mountains. He put his hands on his hips and thought about independently evolved beings from other worlds not yet discovered. Zorker was a term used for a discovery on Regulus 9, 200 galactic years ago. In the densely foliated Zorka River Valley, artifacts were uncovered that were said to be from an evolved race of beings but the discoveries were soon found to be falsified, yet the name stuck. The conventional wisdom for centuries called for Zorker civilization's contact, eventually by frequency waves from the electromagnetic range. The scientific community, even before Galactic Command, was astounded their messages had gone unanswered. Only the energy emissions, nothing intelligent, were received. Planetary systems throughout the known galaxy were teeming with a mix and variations of life, but nothing had evolved to a higher intelligence, defying the odds. He had this same discussion aboard ships, at galactic conferences before the war, and even in pit bars, and the one consensus, or as Ross liked to think, excuse, involved the vastness of space. Distances between the stars were mind-boggling, even picking up light and energy readings from these faraway sources, although bountiful, was still limited. Theories had to be rethought as new generations sought to explain a possible unique sequence of events leading to intelligent life. He looked over the valley, the Uma region of Markov 4, the site of his first assignment after graduating from the Altair Command Institute. Across the valley's fields was the settlement village where he lived with the other officers. Long before the Antarian Wars, he served command in this idyllic land of peaceful mountains and wide river valleys. The shouldering of responsibility was non-existent back then, and he had fallen in love, but she was gone. In some ways, the sweet sadness could eat away at him, but the tug of command reminded him of his present responsibilities. Polonis, get me out of here. Everything went dark, and after a lag, he was back in the chamber, knowing he could only simulate Markov when he had no other demands. 
He peeled off the suit and headed for the shower. The green wall clock digits showed that he had just 10 minutes to make his 7 o'clock appointment with Nancy Burke. He had a secure feeling when he left his cabin, dressed in a new navy gold trim command uniform. Wearing the uniform, especially with a new fabric blend, always put him in another realm where he held power and control. He looked down at the conveyor and walking car at his 200 meters toward propulsion and started down walking corridor A. The upper conveyor car glowed yellow as it approached through the tinted transparent tube and a few crewmen aboard saluted as he passed. Ross returned the salute and moved past the officer cabins. He studied the huge vault lines clamped shut above the unmanned secondary control consoles. In his nine years on Explorer ships, he had never closed the vault locks and jettisoned the rear of the ship. Breaking free of the main ship was not an order any ship's commander would give unless the entire vessel was threatened. Only once, during the war, when his coils were shut down and two Antarian courses were zooming toward the ship, he had thoughts about jettisoning the main body. At the last minute, three command ships caused the Antarians to veer off or he would have done it. That crew had already crammed into the Locusts in the back cabins. All first-ranked cabins lined the corridor ahead to the next section like blue and orange lockers to the conveyor station. A single crewman, Fred Edmonds from Lindy's science team, passed him in the corridor, saluting as Ross headed to the station benches. The computer sensed his presence on the bridge walk that extended to a parallel corridor. Use of the conveyor. Propulsion. The lower car approached from the left and air gushed outward in a sudden rush with the transparency doors open. Commander Alvarez stood and saluted as Ross stepped inside. At ease, Commander. Commander, about my tardiness, there's really no excuse, especially at a time of security level conference, to be late. The doors closed with a gentle bump and the conveyor car went smoothly down the tube. Cabin doors in the corridor whizzed by as they passed observation deck B. If you wish to assign me, enough, Commander. The incident has dropped. Did you have time to visit your family on the mothership? Her eyes darted. Yes, sir. The car moved under a second conveyor bridge, past crewmen in the corridor B and neared propulsion. Alvarez seemed very nervous. He looked into her dark eyes. Something wrong, Lieutenant? No, sir. I'm just worried about being put on report. Well, if you're so worried, he said as he passed more people walking in corridor B, then I suggest you be on time. You aren't some breakaway third rank. Your career is on the rise. You could have command of your own vessel if given the proper circumstance. Remember that. I, I will, sir. Stop being so damned formal. Call me John. He pointed his finger. Listen, this is going to be a long voyage. I've arranged with Dr. Pfeiffer to spend some time improving my defensive skills. Why don't you join me? Well, sir, I'm not as skilled as you in the defensive. Mariah, we all need diversions. Being an explorer ship officer is like being trapped inside of a star furnace. The pressure holds you in even though you want to blow apart. Okay, she said, smiling for the first time. Good. The car moved under the last conveyor bridge and then slowed. Crewmen worked out in the recreation room across the corridor B near propulsion. We have 14 days to Axiom Baroma 7. 13 days, 6 hours. Well, you're starting to sound like Polonis. Just loosen up a little. Yes, sir, I will. As the doors whooshed open, a perpetual low-pitched hum resonated throughout propulsion. Nancy Burke stood with Frank Muldoon at the side propulsion consoles. She looked up and grinned. The 
bearded Muldoon bored her with his deep space, in-depth descriptions. A little bit more detail, Frank. A few more Mokian equations to confuse the lady. Well, she understands what I'm saying, said Muldoon in his usual gruff voice. Don't you, Miss Burke? Well, it is a bit technical. Well, all I know is technical. Ross leaned against the console. That's why I hired you, Frank. Muldoon exposed his top teeth and tightened his crow's peak lines. He excused himself to Nancy and returned to the more extensive console area in the center of propulsion. Thoroughly confused? Well, to be honest with you, I really don't care about accelerators and canister particle flux, and I don't care about the ambient energy flow into the individual coil condensers. Ross smiles. I could have Lonas provide you with schematics. No, 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 she said, moving her hands. I'm not the scientific type. Yet, uh, here you are on an explorer ship heading into deep space on a scientific mission. Or is it? Not your usual beat as a viewer bender. You know my specialty was mothership politics. Was? Admiral Liebert's office asked me if I wanted to go on the story of my lifetime. And what do you think that story could be, Miss Burke? Big, that's all I know. I thought you might provide some insight as we tour the vessel. You know, given our past friendship. Friendship has no place in command decisions. He motioned her across the large black grids and gazed across the propulsion room. Colonus said you were in the Metafac. I hope Dr. Pfeiffer gave you the proper attention to uh, your condition. My condition, Commander. I'm being treated for a specific condition. That's why I turned down the brumac on the mothership. I understand said Ross, not wanting to probe any further. He turned toward the rows of coils, enclosed inside a restricted orange cage and surrounded by three levels of catwalks. Resembling huge grain silos, the outer red hull and radiating heat gave them a massive appearance. I know the coils power the ship, while the coils extend 16 meters into the main propulsion units below us, said Ross. And provide, she said, looking at her clipboard notes, 4,000 mega breaches put in a non existent flight pattern, whatever the hell that means. It merely means that the power levels are low and we're not engaged in flight. I never understood space flight. I guess that's why I'm here, believe it or not. Now you probably wondered why the neck of this vessel is so long. Well, that was one of my questions. Muldoon said, she looked at her notes on the screen. He said the tube was 210 meters long. Why? Are you wasting space? Ross grinned. As Muldoon probably told you, the function of the coils is to bend space and pull it back like an elastic and then shoot us forward. He touched on that, but he started filling my head with these equations. Oh, you'll have to forgive my propulsion officer. He lives in the world of technical data. The reason the ship is so long has to do with bent space. In order to obtain operating speeds, we need to pull back a certain area of space. Emergency speed, 100%, requires a 320-meter focal plane. The length of the Explorer ship is 350 meters. Smaller ships, which you think could travel faster, actually have a limited speed capacity. She shook her head. I still don't understand why you need the length. The outer hull is a stress-free polymer-based material, but it's embedded between, embedded between the layers of perifields, the same field we use to prevent hull rupture during attack. The aligned field is pulled through the bent space as we move forward. Sounds good to me. 
They walk through the array of complex consoles, colored lights blinking and sounds modulating below the coils. Nancy pointed to the area above the Metafact. And fuel canisters are stored up back. That's right. Each canister is swarming with energy. Subatomic instability is tamed and channeled into the coils. Why do you think we're on this mission? She asked, taking him off guard. I like long trips. It gives me time to think. Now let me ask you what you know. In the pit bar, you mentioned the Zorka. I only know this mission is of historic importance. I know we're headed for Axian Baroma 7, a deep space outpost, a haven, according to my superiors, for space rogues, passing freighters, and prisoners from the colony ships, who, if found incorrigible, were dumped there over the years. But somehow they're aligned with command and do have a governor named Bewsmith. It's a reckless desert with very little law and anything goes type of place. Now I ask you, John, how can such a pustule be of historic importance? You're away with words, Nancy. Baroma is a pustule. But what about other life forms? Have you heard through your sources we're searching for the Zorka? My sources tell me that, yes. Oh, and who are your sources? She smiled and shook her head. Her blue eyes brightened. Now you know, John, I'm not going to leave my source hanging. I figured, but I do have some security concerns. We just ended a war filled with deception and self-service. I wouldn't trust anyone. The source is credible. When we reach our destination, I'm sure you will have told me by then. Then we do have a further destination, she said. Her eyes fluttered, and she appeared unstable for a second. Ross reached and grabbed her elbow. Nancy, are you all right? Yes, uh, the therapy is just kicking in. I should know the time frame by now. I'm all right, she said, standing on her own. When will you be completely all right? Oh, I am all right. Actually, this voyage will be a good diversion. Do you like something to eat? The galley is right down the corridor. He pointed to his left as his compact shoulder frequency beeped. Ross, she nodded. John, this is Lindy. I need to speak to you privately on an isolated channel. What's the matter, Lindy? Stuck in the Cambian chamber again? Funny, funny. I can meet you in the galley, said Nancy. Okay, just order me a number five. Sebastian, he's the food service chief. He'll know what you're talking about. Number five doesn't sound like official command nomenclature, said Nancy. Private joke. Number five it is, she said. I'll see you in a few minutes. Ross watched Nancy move away in her day suit, her silver hair contrasting to the green bright fabric. He had always liked her, but he wondered about her medical problem. Pfeiffer would know any details about her illness. Ross took the conveyor to an upper maintenance storage area above the Metafact. He crossed the lighted floor tube and quickly climbed a spiral stairway leading to an external maintenance shuttle. Popping the hatch, he moved inside the shuttle and pushed the forward button. The shuttle vibrated upward through the airlocks. With the maintenance doors popped, the stars spread before him and the shuttle rolled onto a movable chain track over the hull. Ross immediately had the computer activate the isolated AZ visual channel to Lindy. On his compact air screen, a meter and a half ahead of him, red letters flashed in the darkness. Security, level AZ, vessel commander only, priority password. Password, 7th Arc Quanta, said Ross. Cleared. His affable second-in-command sat at a desk in his own cabin, opposite from Ross's cabin at the front of the vessel. He fiddled constantly with a red pencil. John, I just received...
received a level one transmission on AZ from Ebert's office. Even Kaczynski has been left out of this one. Ebert thinks there may be Antarian spies aboard this vessel. He knew it. They're still fighting the war. Intelligence found something after we left this morning. We may have to abort this mission. They're not sure yet. What did they find? Ross's stomach soured when he thought about any Antarians or agents being aboard his vessel. Lindy looked at his readout monitor and tilted the screen. There's some information that somehow the Antarians are on this mission, that the Nebula planet has attracted their attention for some time. It was public knowledge that we sent Dr. Allison out there. Well, that was pure stupidity, said Ross. Are there any Antarian vessels in the sector or are heading toward the Nebula planet? No indication of that at this time, John. I immediately think of Nancy. I just left her two minutes ago, and I'm about to join her in the galley. She's no Antarian spy, Lindy. I know her from way back. Ebert and his people stated that in the transmission. Look, I would still watch her. And everyone on the ship, for that matter. You know how fond the Antarians are and paying in marquees to the highest bidder. Not this cruel, Lindy. I can't believe anyone. I can't believe anyone on ESS-14 would be involved in an Antarian plot. What about the plotters they caught on the mothership? Apparently someone got trigger-happy. They all died before they could be interrogated. Another great move by the Intelligence Service. Wonder if my father was involved in that. Guess the Intelligence Service isn't too intelligent, replied Lindy. Ross smiled and gazed down the length of the narrow neck toward the Locust. You got that right. Let's do this. You and I will have to follow up ourselves. John, I've never heard of a circumstance where the ship's security chief is left out of something like this. I just don't trust anybody when it comes to the Antarians. I can see Ebert's point. Plus, I've seen too many good people fall apart by the Antarians' promises of wealth and power. Everyone has to be suspect. I don't like it, but that's the way it has to be. Communication only on level AZ? Asked Lindy. Yeah. See what else you can find out from command. Outside, here on the maintenance shuttle if we have to, but yes. All communication on AZ. Ross out. He again stared at his ship and the stars, unnerved by the possibility of spies aboard. And when he reversed the shuttle, he felt as if he were on a changed ship, a ship that might have the taint of an Antarian influence. Everyone was suspect now. The treaty was signed, but the war continued. As we have seen, Ross and his crew are ordered on an immediate vessel turnaround. Destination is the Nebula Planet on the edge of known civilization. In the investigation of a distress signal from one of command's highly rated scientists, Dr. Howard Ellison, Nancy Burke, against Ross's wishes, has been ordered to bend the mission. We will see as the voyage gets underway that certain unforeseen challenges threaten ESS-14 itself. I'm Robert P. Fitton in deep space for this one. Full speed ahead. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.